this morning. There's a story that's told about an indoctrination meeting that was held in the Soviet Union before the fall of communism. And the communist lecturer was addressing a large audience, and then he paused, and then he summed up his talk as the people were listening fearfully. And the, the, uh, the communist lecturer said this. In conclusion, he said, there is no God. Jesus Christ never existed. There's no such thing as the Holy Spirit. The church is an oppressive institution anyway. The church is out of date. The future belongs to the state, and the state is in the hands of the Communist Party. And he was about to sit down when an old Russian pastor seated near the front stood up and said, May, may I say three words, please? And the lecturer disdainfully gave him permission. And the old pastor turned and looked over the crowd, and he pulled himself to his full height, and he shouted, He is risen! And there was a momentary pause, and then the crowd thundered back with, He is risen indeed! See, they had been confessing that every Resurrection Sunday for thousands of years. So why should they stop now? But what if that old pastor and the Russian people at that indoctrination meeting were deluding themselves with just wishful thinking? What if the biblical records on which we base our faith are only myths and legend? You see, every generation of believers in Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years has had to wrestle with that issue right there. Now, our setting today in our text, is in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city with a very heavy Greek influence. And for the Christians in this Greek city of Corinth, living just 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Greek cultural influence had a tremendous and significant impact on their understanding of life and death. And most notably, Greek philosophy did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed the spirit was good, but the uh, body was bad. So you, they believed that your spirit may be able to move on to other things, but your body had to stay. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. And as we read through Paul's letters to the, to the Corinthian church, we discover that even some in the Corinthian church there were maybe a little more pagan in their thinking than what Paul had thought they were. They were afraid of being disembodied spirits after death because they had not embraced the Christian doctrine that believers will experience resurrection to eternal life. So denying the reality of the bodily resurrection remains a central problem even today, doesn't it? 2,000 years later, many people still struggle with this whole idea. Atheism rejects even the possibility of the existence of God Instead, they put their faith and their religion in modern science. Some historians have proposed alternative, alternatives to Christ's bodily resurrection. If you were here Good Friday, you would have heard uh, Pastor Ben talking about the swoon theory, right? That everybody was just kind of swept away. Or the stolen body theory, which Scripture tells us was uh, what they tried to propagate after the wrong tomb theory. I mean, we've heard a lot of them. There's also a theory that all the witnesses, even more than the 500 who saw the risen Christ uh, at one time, were just experiencing mass hallucinations and hysteria all at the same time. 
And liberal Christianity suggests that the biblical narratives were changed over time and that they just kind of kept adding to the story to what we have today. Or in other words, they made it up as they went along. Now, as we come to our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, the, the Apostle Paul has already spent some time kind of laying the groundwork for why this is so important. He, he, he's not waved one iota in regards to how important the bodily resurrection of Christ is to our faith. Not one iota. And the key to remember is that Paul connects the bodily resurrection of men with the bodily resurrection of Christ. That those two things are inseparable. That those are tenets, if you will. They're cornerstones of our faith. They're two sides of the same coin, if you will, all the way throughout his thought. And so Paul is rather stating, rather convincingly, if all had ended on the cross, then there would be no good news to share. There would be no bold church to bear witness. There'd be no New Testament to teach and to preach. There'd be no hope for real life here in the hereafter. And so Paul argues that it's impossible to overestimate the importance of the resurrection to our faith. And that's what he's going to speak about here today. But before he does, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for these dear saints who are here today, Lord, who, uh, Father, have taken up their time here today to learn more about you, to celebrate, Lord, the risen Savior. And so help us, Lord, to have open minds and hearts to your wonderful truth, to understand just how important the resurrection is and why it is so important. Give us open hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. Help us to put away all the distractions. Be in our midst for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a little earlier in the chapter, before we get to verse 12, let me just kind of give you a brief little synopsis here. Paul has already established that Christ has resurrected from the dead. That's what he did in the first 11 verses. So if you just sneak back a little bit, look at verse 3. Paul says this, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he what? Was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Incidentally, that is the gospel. You want a two-verse version of the gospel? There it is, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Notice how Paul stresses the scriptures themselves as proof of the resurrection, specifically how Christ's burial, his death, burial, and resurrection were prophesied hundreds of years before the actual event. The apostle Paul also spoke about all the witnesses that had seen the resurrected Christ. If you if you pick it up in verse 5 there, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. When Paul is making this statement, most of those who had seen the risen Christ were still in attendance. They were part of that body. They were part of that assembly. So for him to say that had to be true because there would have been hundreds of people who said that's not true. That's not true. So Paul also used his own testimony of witnessing, his own 
Christ's own appearance to him on the road to Damascus as proof of the risen Christ. So he makes it very clear in the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 15 that the resurrection was the cornerstone of their salvation and of their Christian faith. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15 before he explained the gospel. And remember, he's speaking to whom here? He's speaking to believers. These are actually people that Paul has been ministering to himself for several years now. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received in which you now stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the Apostle Paul is saying the gospel message you heard was the gospel message you understood and believed and were consequently saved under. That's the message. And that gospel message included not only the death and burial of Christ, but also the resurrection. That's what you based your faith on, Paul is reminding them. And the belief in that gospel as truth is the very basis of your salvation. And part of that truth is that Christ had risen from the dead. In other words, unless your faith was shallow, unless you believed in vain, unless your faith was shallow, and you did not indeed believe the truth of the gospel message, if you just went through the motions. Now, clearly, all of the true believers must have believed the truth of the gospel, which included the resurrection, or they would not have been Christians. It's, it's essential to our faith. However, it appears that some of these believers in Corinth were really struggling with the idea of a bodily resurrection. Now jump to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15 now, because this is where Paul now picks up his argument. He says, after saying all of that, after reminding you that that's what your, your uh, salvation is based on, that gospel message, which included the resurrection, now he wants to answer that to those who were struggling with the idea of a bodily resurrection. So in verse 12, we see, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we see here again that not all those in the Corinthian church believed that Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. In other words, they believed everything in the gospel message, but when it came to that bodily resurrection part, they had some very troubling concerns. There are some today who feel that same way. They may identify themselves as Christians, but they really struggle with the idea of a bodily resurrection. They have no problem with Good Friday. They understand death. They know death. They know death is all around them. They've seen it throughout their lifetime, time and time again. That part they get. Good Friday is easy for a lot of people. They have no problem believing the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Jesus, but they have real doubts when it comes to the bodily resurrection. And so to answer those objections, Paul responds now with a series of if statements. What do I mean by that? He says now, okay, if that's true, let's take your theory that this didn't happen. If that's true, then what? Then this must also be true. If you're saying this is true, then this must also be true. Or if that's true, then these would be the results of that truth. That's how he's going to respond. In essence, Paul's answering their question, does it really matter if Jesus resurrected bodily from the grave? Does it really matter? Is it really important? Or what difference does it make whether I believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ or not? 
And he's going to answer that question by pointing out the consequences. If there were no bodily resurrection, then here's what the consequences of that would be. So back to verse 12 again, we see the first of seven if statements. If Christ has preached, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, and from here, Paul will share with these struggling believers in Corinth seven disastrous consequences if it were true that Christ were not resurrected. Look at verse 13 then. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So the first consequence has to do with Christ himself. Paul makes this point twice. He makes it here in verse 13 and again in verse 16. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You jump ahead to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There's a contradiction in the Corinthians logic, and Paul is going to point that out. He's saying, listen, for the sake of argument, let's allow that there's no resurrection from the dead. Let's, let's carry your thought forward, shall we? Then logically, if there's no resurrection, then nobody has ever been resurrected from the dead. And that means that not even Christ has been raised from the dead because he was a human being. He was fully God and fully man. Paul's point, if you believers say that dead men cannot be resurrected, then what are you going to do with Jesus? Because Jesus was definitely a man, and he definitely died. And if you're saying there's no resurrection, then that means he didn't resurrect either. So Paul is asking, are you sure you really want to say that? Is you sure you really want to go down that path? Because you just based your entire faith on the gospel, which included that fact. Your own salvation was based upon the truth of his resurrection. So the first devastating impact of not believing in the bodily resurrection is that if Christ didn't rise and your own salvation is based upon that, that fact, then that brings about a whole host of consequences. Just that one thing right there carries off. Now look at verse 14. Here we get to the second consequence. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also in vain. Look at that. Consequence number two. Without the resurrection, all Christian preaching and teaching is worthless and empty and meaningless and a colossal waste of time. That word vain means literally empty without content or empty of content. Of content. And so as we saw early in this chapter, Christ's death and resurrection are the very heart of the gospel we preach. They're at the very heart of all of our witnessing. Look again at that key phrase that defines the gospel. Remember in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. But if you remove the resurrection from the gospel, then, then that means Jesus could not have conquered sin and death, which means we would still be in its grip. Uh, which would make the good news not really good news at all, would it? Here's consequence number three. Look at the very end of verse 14. Your faith then is also empty of content. Your faith then is also meaningless and worthless and a colossal waste of time. Your faith is worthless. It has no, it also empty, meaningless. You're, you see, without the resurrection, living a life of faith in Christ would be pointless because our faith is a response to the gospel message 
And the gospel message is that he was dead, buried, and rose again. You can't take out part of that and say, well, that's still the gospel. That's like talking about salvation, but not talking about sin. What are we being saved from then? Sin. Salvation is the response to sin. It is God's answer to the sin problem. If the gospel that we've staked our lives on is not true, then the faith that it produces would be without merit as well. Which would mean there's no point to going to church. There's no point in participating in fellowships. There's no point of serving on ministry teams. There's no point of even celebrating Resurrection Sunday. So Paul's already hit on some very disastrous consequences to the response to that question. What difference does it make if Christ rose bodily from the grave? So let's just recap real quick. <laughs> if there's no resurrection of the dead of anyone, then that means not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Consequence number two, and without the resurrection, all Christian preaching and teaching is worthless. Consequence number three, your personal faith is also in vain. Now look at verse 15 as we look at the fourth consequence. Verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul says, here's the, here's the next con con uh, consequence. Without the resurrection, then all of the apostolic witness is a huge lie. Because that's what they were preaching, was Christ raised from the dead, which would mean that the Bible would be totally untrustworthy. And if the resurrection isn't true, then the apostles were the great, world's greatest liars on a colossal scale. They claimed falsely to be from God and witnessed falsely concerning God that he raised Christ. To deny the resurrection is to call the, what the biblical writers not just mistaken, but willfully and intentionally mistaken. And everything that Paul taught would have been smoke and mirrors. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the apostles were not only sent by God with a message from him, but they would have been liars who all conspired together because their, their testimonies are very remarkably similar. And the message that they preach is exactly the same. That's because the gospel records and other New Testament documents are amazingly consistent with one another, aren't they? So those witnesses would have had to work together to come up with stories that mesh so per perfectly. And if they lied about the gospel, then why should we believe anything else that they said? Why should we embrace their teaching about Jesus if they falsified their teaching about Jesus in the resurrection? So all the New Testament truth stands or falls together depending on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the last three consequences that Paul's going to point out, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, they focus more on us as believers. They're more personal now. We already touched on verse 16. Look at verse 17 here. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Consequence number five, without the resurrection, every person who ever lived would be hopelessly lost in sin. What does Paul mean by that? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross in the first place? Because of our sins. In order to reconcile men to God. 
our sin needed to be atoned for to satisfy a just and righteous and perfectly holy God. And the sacrifice itself needed to be perfect to atone for all of man's sin for all time. And yet there needed to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. See, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin are death. But see, it also needed to be a man to both represent man and to die. Because that's the wages of sin. So it had to be perfect, so it had to be God, and yet it had to be a man so he could die. It had to be a perfect God-man. Who is this perfect God-man? That's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. But how do we know that his sacrifice was accepted? How do we know that his crucifixion on the cross, that that work, that atoning work on the cross was actually accepted by God. How do we know our sins are actually forgiven? You see, if Christ has not conquered death, then we would never know if our sins were actually forgiven or not. Jesus said on the cross, remember what he said in John 19, 30, it is finished. But we know for certain that it is indeed finished because of the resurrection. If Jesus' body were still in that tomb, then Satan would have won. Sin and death would still reign over us. And worse yet, we would still all be in our sins. And our faith could not save us because we would still be in our sins with absolutely no way to repay the debt that we owe God for our sins. All of our attempted righteous acts would be repulsive to God because they would be self-righteous acts. That's why the resurrection is so important. When God raised his son from the dead in bodily form, just like the scriptures prophesied, just like all the witnesses confirmed, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins are forgiven. Because if Christ had not been raised, then death would still be victorious over life. Which brings us to our next consequence in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Consequence number six, without the resurrection, not only would we all face death without hope, then all of our believing family members who have died would be lost forever. The point of this passage is that if there's no resurrection, then there's no hope of ever having a reunion together on the other side of eternity. All we have is hopelessness and a few wonderful memories of life that that person lived. That would be it. That would be the extent of it. There would be no hope beyond that. But that's not true. Because if you flip forward, keep your place in 1 Corinthians, but if you can flip forward to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. So Paul here, writing to the church at Thessalonica, addresses this issue. Beginning in verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and what? Rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, because of the resurrection, we do have absolute hope that we will see our believing loved ones. Again, look at verse 17 there. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be where? With the Lord. See, because of the resurrection, we have the hope and assurance that we will indeed be reunited with all those true believers in heaven. Now, finally, back in our text here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Consequence number seven, without the resurrection, the believer's life itself would be pitiable, pitiable and miserable. Paul's point is that if all we get out of Christ is a little peace of mind for a short, few short years, if Jesus was only a good moral teacher then we should be pitied because we've wasted our entire lives. What we have committed ourselves then is no better than any other pagan philosophy or religion. Why waste so much time and energy and resources on such a foolish dream then? Why bother investing ourselves in missions and discipleship and worship and evangelism and fellowship or ministry in Jesus' name if it's not true? Why why not just indulge ourselves in a lifestyle of debauchery and hedonism? Why not? Why not? We might as well commit ourselves to the same debased things that the world places such great value in. Well, Paul answers that actually in verse 20. He says this, But now, but now, in contradiction to all that you have been saying, all of the questions you had about whether this was essential or not. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. See, the power of the resurrection is at work even here and now. So all of those what-if questions are answered because Paul says he has been raised from the dead. The reality of our life, our history, our past and present and future is focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith is grounded in it. That word first fruits here is an agricultural team, meaning the first part of the harvest. And Israel was very familiar with that term being primarily an agrarian culture. They also would have understand that, understood that concept because of all the feasts and the sacrificial offerings that were uh, where the offering of grain would have been included. But here Paul is reminding them that Jesus was the first to die and the first to be resurrected to eternal life. One who died and rose again and remains alive now forever. All of his children will be raised from the dead and given a glorious new body as well someday. Not one of his children will be missed. Every single one of them will receive new glorified bodies, amen, that are eternal, free from sickness and disease, not tainted with sin, with no imperfections, no defects. We will be reunited with the saints of all ages as we all gather around the throne and sing the praises of our Lord and Savior. Or as Brandon said, we will be saying, that's my king. We will be astounded 
at God's grace and mercy. We'll bow deeply before him, giving him all the honor, praise, and glory. Every crown that we receive from our walk in this life, we will lay at the feet of Jesus because it is him working in us and through us that we have that crown at all. Someone once told me, what do you think you'll be doing in heaven, right? What do you think you're going to be doing in heaven? I asked them that, what do you think you'll be doing in heaven? And they said, well, I think for the first 1,000 years, I will be prostrate, laying before the king in thankfulness for all that he has done for me. Scripture tells us we will dwell with him in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. My friends, that's the hope of every Christian. It's the hope of every Christian on this side of the cross, is it not? Everyone. It's the cornerstone. And at the cornerstone of that hope, at the cornerstone of that belief, is the resurrection. Why do you think the resurrection is attacked so so mercilessly? Because they understand if the resurrection fails, all of Christianity falls with it. Over 2,000 years ago now, Jesus was resurrected from the grave, and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. One day he will return to this earth, not as a suffering servant, but as a king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he does, the dead in Christ will rise first. And many doubted in Paul's day, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Still today, many doubt, but Paul is abundantly clear. To deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus has disastrous consequences. Not the least of which is the fact that we would still be in our sins and we would still be at enmity with God. I want to ask you something personal here for a second. Are you able to say for yourself that Christ has risen from the grave? Do you know that in your heart of hearts? Do you believe that? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his resurrection secures your salvation? That his atoning work on the cross washed away your sins, removed your sins as far as the east is from the west? That you became a new creature in Christ at the moment you surrendered your life to Christ? Do you know that without a shadow of a doubt? Because if you don't, you can't. And I would encourage you not to leave today before you make that decision. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't presume you have another breath to take. Because even that last breath you just took is by the grace of God. Beloved, many of you here today have already made that decision. And you are living for the Lord today. And we join with Christians from the very beginning who declare that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Death couldn't hold him. He rose again. And that's the powerful message that has come down through the ages. And it was affirmed by that Russian pastor under the tyranny of communism, is it not? We proclaim it here as the church gathers for worship. He is risen. And we know today that because he's raised bodily, we too shall be resurrected bodily, and we will be forever united in the house of the Lord forever. What a glorious hope we have in Christ Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come forward, if you would, please.